I just want to say a quick thank you to everyone who brought a special dish today for the breakfast and uh, for the people that made all the pancakes and all that stuff possible. So can we just go ahead and acknowledge those that served us today? So if you just showed up to church, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, we did have our annual church Christmas breakfast uh, immediately preceding this gathering, and so thank you for those of you uh, that helped serve that and bring egg dishes and those types of things. And I was sitting at a table where somebody accidentally put yogurt on top of their pancakes, thinking it was whipped cream. I felt so bad for this person, but uh, there's plenty of pancakes to go around, so we just kind of reloaded up with another one with the right stuff. So, so thanks again for, for helping us out with that. Um, you know, we're in the Gospel of Mark still, and we'll be here, and we're finally in chapter two, okay? We've, we've taken, I think, nine or ten messages on chapter one, and we're really just kind of laying the foundation, and we'll go through the book a little bit faster from this point out, but even in this passage, we're going to actually take two weeks to look at it as well, just because there's so much stuff, there's so much beauty in God's word. And so let me just go ahead and open up and, and say this, and then we'll pray in a few moments after we read the passage, but open up to Mark chapter 2. And what we're going to see is that these opening stories in Mark's gospel reveal to us that Jesus had been sent to bring healing into a broken world. Amen? That's what we just talked about, a weary world can rejoice because yonder is breaking a new and glorious morn. We exist in the tension of living between two different advents, the first one and the second one. That's what we're going to look at next week. But we just sang the song, Joy to the World, right? It's one of my favorite ones. No more let sin, nor sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, because he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And people... The curse is everywhere. It's everywhere. But the Messiah's blessings can flow everywhere as well. But the advent, the appearing of the dominion of God to bring about God's blessings instead of curses is evidenced by these opening scenes in Mark's gospel. And it's going to be there again today in our text. A few weeks back when we started this series, it was said that death entered into this world as an intruder. Death intruded in the Garden of Eden. In the beginning, humans were not intended to live with chaos and disorder and disease and destruction and death. That was the result of being deceived by the intruder into God's garden. And ever since then, there has been two kingdoms at war with each other. There's a lowercase k kingdom of Satan and the true uppercase k kingdom of the kingdom of Almighty God. And the Bible chronicles this war. In this time of year, we remember a time when God invaded time and space, took on flesh, God in the flesh, in order to deliver a deathly counterstrike to that counterfeit kingdom of Satan. And so the Messiah, look at this, I love this, the Messiah intrudes into the intruder's territory. And his intrusion into the trespasser's territory in 33 years' time, is going to cause Satan to shudder and his false kingdom to fall and be left in shambles. So that's what we're, we're, we're going to look at the whole gospel of Mark, and we're still at the beginning here. But the Messiah intruded into the intruder's territory, but all this was not without opposition. The leaders of his day were threatened by the authority of Jesus, and they were threatened by it just like our first parents felt threatened by God's authority. 
in the Garden of Eden, remember? How dare God say that we can eat from every tree and then prohibit one, right? Who is he to lay down such a prohibition that inhibits our freedom? You're intruding into our our, our lives here. And so starting here in chapter 2, people are still going to have their minds blown away by Jesus, but they're going to start to get really agitated with him as well. And the way Mark constructs this next segment of his gospel is really brilliant. He's going to string together five stories. They're not consecutive in the life of Christ, but he's going to take five stories from the overall three years of ministry, and he's going to put them together, string them together, because they have one theme in common. And the theme is this, there's controversy over his authority. They're all connected. These next five stories that we're going to look at have the theme of centering around intrusion. With the arrival of Jesus, the prophecy of Isaiah 43 verse 19 is unfolding. It says this, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And the messianic mission to planet earth had begun and the way in which a holy God would from now on relate with sinful people was about to be turned on its head and people didn't like it and they were opposed to it. But make no mistake, this is about authority in these next five stories. And kingdoms, even counterfeit ones, don't like to be intruded. But that's why Jesus came and that's what he came to do He comes crawling out of the cradle that we think about so often this time of year, and he gets in the very core of our beings, and he starts to change things around. And the next five stories we encounter in Mark's gospel are going to demonstrate that he alone actually has the power and the authority to do actually that, change us. So with that in mind, let's look and turn our attention to God's word as we read the first of these five stories that Mark is going to string together that we'll unpack over the next month or so. Starting in chapter 2, man, my Bible is marked to chapter 1. We're finally done with chapter 1. Here we go, chapter 2. And when he returned, that's Jesus, to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And that when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would have that same gut-level reaction today as we open up your word. That we would collectively say in our hearts, instead of questioning in our hearts, that we've never seen anything like this. And be drawn to you instead of repelled away from you and concerned about your authority over matters of life and death over matters of eternal life and death, over matters of how we live our lives and conduct our lives in this present day tense moment of living between two advents. God, I pray that you would open up our hearts to receive all that you have for us today. And as we move towards a time of communion at the end of this gathering, that we would be able to take in our hands the sacrifice that which the elements of the sacrifice that which um, demonstrate how we can have our sins forgiven in the first place. So God, we give you full permission to speak authoritatively now that you would kind of come crawling out of that cradle that we so often put you in in this time of season and recognize you as the authoritative Messiah who's on a mission to planet Earth to change the way that we can relate with you. And so God, I pray that as we give ourselves to you in this passage, that you would prove to be able to blow our minds with what we see here and how you intrude our daily lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so there's a lot of things we can say from this passage. And like I said, we'll take two weeks to look at it um, with a pause in between because of Christmas uh, service next week. But this passage is going to show us a few important things that we can apply to our lives, but of utmost importance we're going to see that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. We can't miss that. Now, we're going to add to a lot of this, what we're going, to, we're going to glean a lot from this passage, but that's the main point, that Jesus alone has authority to forgive sins. This will be shown to us in an undeniable and a completely convincing way next time we get together. But there are other things that we can get out of this passage as well. So last week we said that Jesus, if you were here, broke the cultural norms of the day to heal the leper by touching him. Remember that? Like, you don't do that, but Jesus did it. He broke the cultural norms of the day and reached out and touches this untouchable man. But in this story, we're going to see people breaking cultural norms to get to the object of their faith. Well, what would those be? Well, they tore a hole in a roof. That's not normative, right? But you see, in this text, faith without works is dead. We recently took a long time to go through the epistle of James to make sure that we all understood that our knowing must become doing, that our faith needs legs, that faith always works. And so the men we read about today worked really hard to get to the object of their faith. Have you ever heard the phrase, if it were illegal to be a Christian, Would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? If you ever heard that phrase, just go ahead and audience participation. If you were, if it was illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? That's a very thought-provoking question, and we should probably think about it often. 
But if these guys in the text today were brought before a judge and a jury and they were asked that question, they'd say, yeah, just the other day we tore a hole in a roof, right? I wish the Christian life was as easy as demo day on Fixer Upper. Wouldn't that be easy, right? Wouldn't that be great, just fun all the time? You just walk around with sawzaws, crowbars, sledgehammer, tearing holes and things, and then asked why, you're just saying, I'm just trying to keep in step with the Spirit, you know? These guys have evidence to prove their faith in the Messiah. There's an impromptu skylight to prove it. So how about you? What barriers are standing between you and the object of your faith that needs to be demolished for you to be closer to his healing power? That may be a question for you to mull over for a bit this Christmas season. What needs to be cut out of your life as if with a sawzall or maybe with a pry bar, a crowbar? What needs to be pried out of your life or with a sledgehammer smashed to pieces in your life so that you can follow Jesus better? I, I pray that you sincerely pray about that. We've already read the story and I think you'd all agree that there's a happy ending to the story, but have you ever thought about the guy whose roof was just compromised, right? Talk about intrusion. The kingdom of God had broken into the world, and this guy's poor house was broken into as well. So think about this. Whose house was it? I don't know if I've ever thought about it. I've read this story. I mean, I've been a Christian for 20-some years now. And I've never thought about it until I was like forced to sit down and like read the text. I don't know if I've ever given it much thought until I was forced to sit down and really look at the text and interact with its context and its word usage on a deeper level. And so I, want, I was mulling over this and thinking about this. And I can't say with 100% certainty and commentaries don't know and the chosen dep- depicts one thing. And, you know, so we don't know with 100% certainty, but there's a really good chance that this was the home of Jesus himself. So let's walk through the story and look at it and see what it says. It says, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So here we get The story opens up with Jesus speaking to the crowds that are so large that there wasn't even standing room only. They were spilling out of the residence itself. The local fire codes were being violated here, certainly. The comment, not even at the door, indicates that there's probably a crowd outside of the dwelling, too. And Mark says that when Jesus, when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum, it was reported that he was at home. Well, first of all, where had he been? Well, he must have been away somewhere from his normal place of residence in order for Mark to say that he returned and was home. It's like he was here, but then he was out, but then he returned back to where here was. And the last verse of the last section that we looked at last week tells us where he had been. Look at Mark 145. But he, which is the healed leper, went out and began to talk freely about it, about his healing, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and the people were coming to him from every quarter. So the healed leper can't keep quiet 
And that enhances the popularity of Jesus to the degree that he was unable to enter into towns without getting mobbed by people. And so he spent much of his time wandering in the wilderness outside of the city walls of society. So first of all, you're not alone if you feel like an outsider. And second of all, there is so much irony with Jesus being in the wilderness, but it was also completely fitting because he was assuming our poetic justice. He was experiencing the fitting and deserved retribution for our actions, not his own. We should have been ostracized and outcast, but he assumes that for us. So it's great storytelling that Mark puts here. Just kind of hooks us when you really dig and think about it. So now we know where he had been, but where does he return to? And Mark says, home. Now I know it's not explicit, but maybe the most natural and logical reading is that this could be where Jesus laid his head night after night before he began his public ministry. I know that later on in his public ministry, he's like, I have no place to lay my head. But what about before that? He had a residence. So let me illustrate this for just a second. Last week, my heart felt really good when I looked up in the front row and I saw Eli Reinhardt. I don't know if you remember this moment that we shared last week, but I was in the second row, you were in the front row. And I looked at him and I was surprised to see him because he was away at college the last time I talked with him or thought about him. And so I think I mouthed the words from a distance, are you here? And I laugh at that question because it's obvious. He's like, yeah, duh, I'm here. But I was like, are you here? And later on that day, I went home and I said to my boys, I was like, guess who's home? And they said, who? And I said, Eli, he's home from college. Now, we used to be neighbors. We used to live out on Jackman Road and we used to go to the Reinhardt's house all the time. And we used to go there often. And if I told my boys that Eli was home, where do you naturally think they would go looking for him? They would go to the end of Jackman Road because that was where Eli lived. That's where we would most likely encounter the greatness of Eli Reinhardt. <laughs> All right? Now, he could, have been at some, he could have been at some other person's house. Eli might be there, right? But why not his own house, right? And the same thing with Jesus. This could have been Jesus' house. In fact, that word oikos is used 122 times in the New Testament. 61 of those 122 times means simply house. 22 of those times means a family's house, like a family residence. 21 of those times it means home. In my quick study, I never saw anything referencing anything but a residence. It never seemed to be referring to a general vicinity like like Eli's home somewhere wandering around Whatcom County, he's at the end of Jackman Road. It's home. So this could have been Jesus' home, but honestly, it really makes no difference whether or not this was Jesus' actual home or if it was another person's home. The massive thing that we need to notice is that this was a home that was used for ministry. Don't miss this. So how about you? This is going to get really practical. This is going to intrude into your life, especially the next couple of weeks for this next section of what I'm going to talk about here today. How about you? Are you willing to allow your home to be used by the Lord Jesus Christ for ministry purposes?
How hospitable should you and I be with our homes, and especially this time of year? I remember reading a book a few years ago by Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, subtitle, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. How are we going to reach out to people was the premise of the book. And she says this, radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors family of God. And you say, well, that's hard. That's intrusive. That intrudes into the normal fabric of the way we do our life in our home. Our normal life might be impacted by what you're saying here. I'm not good at doing things like that. I'm an introvert. Guess what? The person who wrote that book was an introvert readily admits and says this, we introverts miss out on such great blessings when we excuse ourselves from practicing hospitality because it exhausts us. I often find people exhausting, amen? Anybody? She says, I often find people exhausting, but over the years I've learned how to pace myself, how to prepare for the private time necessary to recharge, and how to grow in my discomfort. Knowing your personality and your sensitivities does not excuse you from ministry. It means that you need to prepare in a different way than others might. Some of you need to pray this, Lord, help me this holiday season to grow in my capacity to be uncomfortable with the people that are going to be coming over. That could be your prayer. Help me grow in my capacity to feel uncomfortable but still be hospitable to those people that are going to be coming in our houses over the next couple weeks with the holidays among us. None of us are off the hook Ministry needs to take place in our homes regardless of your personality type. Look at the end of verse 2. And many were gathered there together so that there was no more room. Does your house feel crowded over Christmas maybe? Not even at the door. And look at what Jesus is doing. And Jesus, he was preaching the word to them. Jesus was preaching the word to them in his private home or in a private home. He's not in the office, so to speak. This wasn't his regular scheduled meeting time or his meeting place. But he was always prepared to give the reason for the hope that he was bringing into the world. And so he's preaching the word to them in a private setting, in a private place, in off hours. So whoever owned the deed to the home allowed for inconvenient ministry to take place there. And he said, well, how inconvenient was it? Well, I think having a hole torn in your roof is inconvenient enough, wouldn't you say? Sometimes we can feel so much pressure to have our homes just right in order for people to enter into them. HGTV is awesome, but it sets a nearly impossible and unimportant standard. How many throw pillows do you really need to make your space comfortable? Right? Yikes. There's a life group question for that. We're going to find out who has the most pillows on their beds. 
We might be in the running, all right? (laughs) But more important than how your home looks is the love and the care and the sense of belonging that can be experienced by neighbors and strangers if they're allowed into it. That's the purpose of you having a home. To minister to your people and to minister to other people. That's what we see taking place here. So especially around the holidays, you're probably really busy, I get it. But you also might have more time and capacity than you think. If you have kids out of school, this is a perfect time to invite other neighborhood and school kids into your home. People, this will probably be the only place they will ever encounter Jesus. Ever. And you might say, well, if I use my house to minister to kids, they might tear my house apart. And I'd say to you, well, it won't be the first time. This guy had his, the roof torn apart for ministry purposes to bring about healing. Worth it. You might get stains on the carpet. You might have a broken plate or two. Your water bill, your electric bill might go up. If you have teenagers over, you'll probably quadruple your food budget. But letting your physical home be torn apart, so to speak, so that others can experience the healing they need is so very close to the heart of God. So I laughed at this thought this week. You know, maybe when Jesus looked at this guy that he was about to heal and said to him, your sins are forgiven, maybe it was in reference to tearing the hole in the roof, right? <laughs> we'll, let, we'll let that one go. I'll pay for that one too, right? So let's keep going and notice a few things. Verse three and four. And they came, they came bringing to him a paralyzed or a paralytic carried by four men, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Here we can see people's faith in action, can't we? This is what faith in this context looks like. And so this is what one commentator says. The houses in those days were low, usually with an outside stairway to each to reach the roof. The roofs were tiled and covered with thatch. And four men had to drag the cot up the stairs, tear up the tiles, dig through the thatch. The hole would have had to be large enough to get the cot through. And add to this the annoyance of the people below. Debris would have been falling on them as they tried to listen to the words of Jesus. And to further complicate the matter, there would be damage to somebody else's property. That's what faith looked like. This man was being carried Almost like the way you would carry an offering to the temple. And we're going to see that Jesus is the new temple. Because he bypasses the temple in order to administer forgiveness to people. We'll get to that next time we're together. But this man is being carried almost like the way an offering would be carried to the temple. It was as if this man was being offered on the altar. This scene reminds me of what Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All of your life being offered, that's what this paralytic is doing. 
He's being offered and presented to Jesus by a matter of faith that worked. This man is coming with all of his incapabilities to the only capable one. The leper in the last section knelt down before Jesus, and this man is literally lowered down and presented to Jesus. I want you to think about how vulnerable this scene is. Imagine yourself there, or maybe just outside looking in, watching this take place. Imagine yourself in the room or just outside the dory for a moment. This is potentially massively awkward, want to get away moment getting ready to happen. This is an elephant in the room that no one can ignore. This guy and his friend's faith in Jesus' ability was pretty palpably socially awkward and honestly pretty humiliating. Here's a guy that can't walk. He's lowered down from the roof line in front of everyone to see in hopes that the preacher man would stop his teaching and somehow make him walk? What? That's not normative. Like, what if this doesn't work? What if it wasn't within the will of Almighty God to heal this man and they tore a hole in the roof in front of basically the whole town for no reason? Potentially, they're forever labeled as the weirdos that did that destructive, reckless, socially awkward thing. Here's the beauty. They don't care about what other people think. They only care about what Jesus is capable of doing. Sometimes we're hindered in expressing great acts of our faith in God because we're too busy worried about how other people might perceive us. Sadly, this happens even in our families in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, and even in when the church gathers here. How so? Well, maybe you've wanted to introduce some sort of intentional spiritual development time into the life of your family, but you haven't because you think that someone in your family will think you're having a holier-than-thou mindset. Or you might feel like you don't have the right words to say, or you pray out, and when you pray out loud, it might sound weird or fake or whatever, and so you make no actionable plans to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit to pray with your family members. Because you have a prompting of the Holy Spirit to do something like that, be like, man, what, but what's my son gonna think? What's my, do- what's my wife gonna think? Or what's my husband gonna think if I initiate this? And so we never do that. Maybe, for students, look up here for a second. Like, first of all, congratulations. I think you all made it through the first semester, right? Or at least the first season, right? Maybe you've been convicted to follow Jesus in your school, among your classmates and your peers, but when you're face-to-face with them, you kind of cower in fear and you never really live for Jesus publicly because you think it will cost you way too much socially.
Maybe when the church gathers, you want to be more expressive, maybe even more emotional, and engage in musical worship in a deeper level, but you wonder what other people might think if you raise your hands, or if a tear escapes your tear duct and slides down your cheek a little bit. What if other people think there's some major problem in my life or my marriage and that I have some sort of massive moral failure and so that's why I'm weeping? Our minds can go a thousand places when they're not fixated on Christ. And so instead of offering our worship that we feel compelled by the Spirit's prompting to offer, we just shell up and we're content with not giving any appearance of zeal or passion. Or we may feel compelled to say amen out loud during a sermon, and we don't because we think, what if other people will hear me say that, and what are they going to think? No amens to that? Someone say it. There we go. Yes, yeah. See, it wasn't that bad, right? What I want to say about all those categorical things is this. Who cares? The only person that cares is you. And you're caring about the wrong thing. We hinder our expressions of faith all the time because of how we think we might be perceived by others. My brothers and sisters in Christ and those online, this should not be. It shouldn't be. That's how the lowercase counterfeit kingdom of Satan triumphs. Because it's our individual expressions of faith is what like enhances our time together. Our individual expressions of faith are exactly what we need to ignite a passion among us all. Expressions of faith can be contagious in a very good way, in a very God-honoring way. You know what happens when I see other people compelled to live by faith? It causes me to want to do the same. That's why the author of Hebrews writes an entire chapter giving examples of people who live by faith nearly despite what others might have thought about them. The belief of Abraham was put into action when he obeyed God and he offered his son. The belief of Isaac was put into action when he invoked future blessings on both of his boys, Jacob and Esau. The belief of Moses was put into action as he refused to be associated with the enemies of God. He could have enjoyed the fleeting pleasures of sin, but... He's bold in his faith, and his faith compels him to consider the reproaches of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking for a reward, the reward. You see, expressions of faith are contagious, and faith is always rewarded. Faith is believing God's word and acting on it regardless of how you feel or what other people might think of you. Knowing that God promises a good result, so you do it. You make that expression of faith actionable regardless of what others think and say. 
no matter what that will cost you socially because you're looking forward to the reward. And the author of Hebrews knows this, and that's why he says what he says next in chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these people I just spoke of, all the people that you see living by faith on shoulder to shoulder with you, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, not other things that we're scared of, but looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So the author of Hebrews says this, don't look around at the naysayers. Don't be a naysayer yourself. Look at those who are expressing faith and then lay aside every weight and do the same. Lay aside every social encumbrance so that you can express the faith that you do have. Lay aside the sin which does have more than just a tendency to cling so closely to us. We all have it. But we must progressively move away from that which is going to destroy us. Move away from it and be done with it so that we can get on doing with what which we know God has specifically called us to do. In your home, with your home, in your school, in your family, and society at large, whatever it might be. We must run our specific race in a specific way until Jesus comes. And that could be a very long time. It could be a very short time. We don't know. We need to run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life is not a wind sprint of massive expressions of faith followed by long periods of inactivity. I remember when I was super spiritual in college <laughs> and I'm 40, like, no. It's as Eugene Peterson says, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Repentance and believing God and following God is a realization that what God wants from us and what we want from God are not going to be achieved by doing nothing. We must change the way we think and we must change the way we act. And living by faith is a calculated decision to turn away from that which we are previously going and humbling ourselves before Jesus and setting our eyes on him as the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Think about these people. These people carrying this man didn't care about what other people thought of their actions. They only cared about what Jesus could do if they demonstrated faith in his life-changing abilities. And so they came to him. And they lowered down a man in front of him, and we must do the same with our lives. The means of getting into this house and into the sight line of Jesus was completely abnormal, but they don't care about that. And in fact, Mark doesn't make a big deal about it either. He just says they tore a hole in the roof. Like it's normal. But what he makes a really big deal about is the abnormality of the quality of the faith that these men possess because this is what Mark says, chapter two, verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, what did it look like? Well, it looked like a hole in the wall, in the roof. He said to the paralytic, 
Like no questions asked, no dialogue yet. Son, your sins are forgiven. And that's going to spark massive controversy in the second half of the story. But look at this. This is what Mark makes a big deal about. Not the whole, but it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus recognized this bold expedition as an expression of faith. These four men and the man on the mat clearly believed that Jesus had the power to heal. This is a desperation type of faith that would cost a lot. There is no barrier that would keep these men from seeing Jesus. All of these men, not just those men carrying the man, but the man on the mat himself were demonstrating faith in Jesus' ability to bring about a much needed healing. And then to everyone's surprise, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, you're like, what? We'll get into that next time we're together in this passage. Son, your sins are forgiven. What did this man come for? This man came hoping to get his legs to start working. But Jesus forgives his sins And he gives a whole new direction for those legs to start walking in for all of eternity. In part two of this sermon, we're going to finish the story. And we already know the end of the story. This man was able to rise up and walk. And what the counterfeit kingdom of chaos and disorder had stolen from this man, the king of kings redeemed and restored. And we'll talk about that next time. But in the meantime... I want us to consider the means by which our sins can be forgiven in the first place as we move into a time of Holy Communion. Let's pray. God, as we move into this time of communion, God, we are amazed that you would give as a great expression of your passion and desire for us, you went on mission into the world that you created and led by love into this place where you would be slaughtered on our behalf. And God, I pray that we would humbly approach this time in a way that is honoring to you. We thank you that you have given us a new way to walk with our legs for the rest of eternity as well, as we do try to keep in step with the Spirit, as we try to pry those old things out of our lives and in their place put a new way of living God, I pray that we would do this expression of our faith right now as we take these elements in our hand and we proclaim the Lord's death until you come again. God, I pray that for this time of reflection, of communion, that we would be able to receive it in a worthy fashion. And this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.